I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Green Lantern Revisited. This is a compilation of our original 2013 Green Lantern podcast from the earlier incarnation of School of Movies, Digital Gonzo, and the much, much more recent reappraisal of the Ryan Reynolds film by Sharon and myself, previously Patreon exclusive only. And this is because after an entire decade, we finally did what we initially wanted to and recorded a spoilerific 90 minute follow-up show on Green Lantern, the animated series, which is truly unsung and excellent. That new material has now been combined with the original spoiler-free part of this vintage Green Lantern show. So the short of it is two newly re-edited podcasts, one on the 2011 movie, one on the animated series which ended in March 2013, and each podcast now has two halves, what we thought then and what we think now. And if you know nothing about Green Lantern, then this one is the best place to start, because back then, in 2013, we talked about the comics first. So, enjoy hearing us jawbone about a movie that Ryan Reynolds would rather nobody ever saw, and conversely, you definitely should not skip the animated series, developed by Bruce Timm and Giancarlo Volp of Avatar. Water. I knew that would get your attention. Sploosh. With me tonight are Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home. Hello. Sharon Shaw, also of Do Try This at Home. Good evening. Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet. Good day, sir. And Alex Eading of Plaid Hat Games. Beware my power. Hello, Alex. Hello. You're a, a late addition to this one because we needed someone of supreme enthusiasm uh, towards Green Lantern, and you just sort of started blathering on Twitter. I was like, well, this guy seems to know his stuff. <laughs> there was gushing, yes. Okay, a brief history of Green Lantern. The first Green Lantern was named Anyone? Alan Scott, Scott, Alan Scott. Alan Scott. First appearing in comic books written by Martin Nodell in 1940. This was shortly after Batman and Superman, and this magically powered being in a red top and green cape had just over a decade worth of adventures, until, like Captain America, he was retired as the interest in superhero comics switched to westerns in the 1950s. However, as any Toy Story fan will tell you, sci-fi eventually deposed cowboys, and in 1959, Julius Schwartz, along with Gil Kane and John Broom, invented a second Green Lantern named... Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan, redesigned as a spacefaring policeman. While Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman have always been Bruce, Clark and Diana, with their origins reset every few decades to keep continuity fresh, Green Lantern shares with The Flash a lineage of multiple heroes taking on the role of the Scarlet Speedster and the Emerald Knight. Alan Scott eventually found his way into Hal Jordan's comics as a Green Lantern from a parallel dimension. For the period post-crisis in the early 80s and up to the New 52, which changed everything again, Alan Scott was written back into continuity as a supremely long-lived, old-timey action hero and predecessor of Hal Jordan, although he retained his magical abilities. As of New 52, he is a young hero living in a different world again. Don't know much about New 52, Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Anyone? 
Nope. No, me neither. <laughs> I think he's gay. I think that's all I know. Oh, right. I heard that they made him yeah. officially, openly out of the closet. Oh, cool. Okay. Hal Jordan, however, is the lantern we are going to focus on tonight. Painfully heterosexual that he is. In a career spanning 54 years, he has cemented himself. He's like Kirk. Seriously, sniffing any skirt he possibly can. Serious case of the not gays. Yeah, in a, in a career spanning 54 years, he has cemented himself as, if not the original, then the best and most beloved Green Lantern. In the simplest terms for the newcomer that we can muster, here is what you really need to know about Green Lantern. I have written down ten facts. Hal Jordan is a hotshot test pilot. He has issues with authority. One day, an alien spaceship crashes nearby and Hal discovers a dying alien. The alien gives him a green ring and a literal green lantern. The ring is a device that turns its wearer's imagination into hard light constructs. For example, wearing one of these rings, you can imagine a massive sword, a machine gun, or a sailboat, and a green version of that would emerge from the ring to be used by you for as long as your focus maintains and the power of the ring lasts. The ring has a finite energy supply and must be recharged by contact with the lantern, which is effectively a mobile power battery, but you can leave that in your closet if you like. On receiving these items, Hal is transported to a citadel-style planet named Oa, located through a wormhole close to Earth. On this planet are approximately 7,200 other Green Lanterns. Each is a member of the Green Lantern Corps. There are two representatives for each of the 3,600 sectors of known space. All of them would be aliens to us, as Hal was the first person from Earth to join the core. On the planet is an enormous lantern that acts as a power base for the entire core. This green light is the literal embodiment of the collected will of every species in the universe. The rings the core use are powered by and thus dispense that will. They're presided over by the Guardians, a governing body of a dozen or so immensely old, tiny blue granddads. These beings can only see the history of the universe over an immensely long timescale, so they come off as very cold to the immediate suffering of others. It is thus up to their core to deal with both short-term issues in their sectors and the greater reality-threatening Reaper-style doomsday scenarios. Finding a balance between the two is where the core interesting features of the Green Lantern stories lie. At its core, the ongoing saga is about how men and women cope with fear. Yes. Yes. The fact that each lantern, unlike Superman, doesn't have infinite power and in fact has to choose how much to use each time makes the application of their powers, when done right, a source of tension. In effect, there is an element of fear in simply using this power. For the first four decades or so, as silly as it sounds, the only weakness that Green Lanterns had was... The color, color yellow. yellow. Color yellow. <laughs> color yellow. <laughs> this was a rich wood. Oh, and wood. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, we'll get there. <laughs> this was originally a narrative structure to give them a more common kryptonite. Later it was explained that in making the main power battery on Oa, the Guardians had to imbue it with a weakness to yellow. Later still, this became associated with the color of fear, and an opposing, much smaller but very aggressive group named Sinestro Corps, started by an ex-Green Lantern, who wished to conduct control through fear rather than will. Right. Now, anybody want to explain how yellow could be employed to stymie a Green Lantern back in the day? If 
they wanted to um, create a construct, it physically wouldn't work on anything that was yellow. So if you wanted to, say, um, knock down a house and that house was painted yellow, you couldn't. Yep. Yep. Carry on. <laughs> it's unfortunate that that's all you really needed to do was have <laughs> yellow armor on so you were safe from Green Lantern. How well known was this weakness? Like, you know, where, where every time Green Lantern faced a foe, was it someone who was like, "Yes, I know all about your weakness to yellow, Green Lantern," or was it something you kept, they kept under their hats? I want to say, I want to say, I've seen. While I haven't read much of the the pre Jeff Johns era of Green Lantern, Jeff Johns is the current author, uh, the writer of the Green Lantern series. But I remember seeing lots of covers of old Green Lantern comics. In, you know, the, from the 90s, maybe, where he was being menaced by people who were either had, I, I have just one picture vividly in my mind is of three construction looking workers mm. with yellow jackhammers threatening the Green Lantern. Nice. So basically the peanut butter jelly time banana could strike fear into his heart. <laughs> yep. Super Ted. Is he yellow? Is he orange? He has yellow on his costume. Spotty man, though. Spotty was yellow, yeah. <laughs> but why would Super Ted and Spotty be fighting Green Lanterns? Because they're good. I, that is a good idea. Fan fiction, we need to know. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Okay, what? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> like, well-known yellow yellow characters that actually might um, menace Green Lanterns. SpongeBob would give him trouble. Yep. Okay. So, uh, uh, now, there's point? a throwdown I want to see, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> In uh, only old school Greenland, I'm assuming new school Greenland would probably be a bit, you know, more more capable of dealing with it. H how have they gotten over this over the years? The ability to overcome great fear is what gives you your, you know, your calling as a lantern. It's how you are chosen. Mm. So by getting past that fear, uh, it is also kind of helping you overcome the yellow weakness. And we will be talking about that in greater detail. Yellow, traditionally the color of urine, cowardice, and Lala, the shittest Teletubby. Uh, to explain, <laughs> yellow, we have Who You Calling Yellow by Jamas Enright. Who You Calling Yellow? When I was much younger and often sick, my grandmother brought me comics, in particular Green Lantern comics. In one of the first comics I read, Green Lantern was held hostage by a man that had a golden outfit. This, of course, caused problems for Green Lantern because he couldn't affect anything with the color yellow. <laughs> Which sounds odd when you say it out loud. At the time we accepted it, superheroes had flaws, had their one element that brought them to their knees, and this gave them a chance to show how brawn needed brains, and this is a great lesson. No matter what power you hold in your hands, you need to think to get around problems. How is that not a worthy idea? But the colour yellow? At least Superman had a whole substance that caused him problems. But anyone could slap on the colour yellow and all of a sudden, bam, you can get around worrying about Green Lantern. Now, in some cases, the colour could be more easily motivated, such as the aforementioned Goldface. He liked gold, had golden skin, had a gold covered cage to trap Green Lantern in. Stop me if I'm wrong. Wasn't Goldface the villain in Agent Michael Scarn, the script in the office? Oh, God, I think you're right. Was it really? <laughs> it sounds a bit racist by today's standards. <laughs> now, in some cases, the colour could be more easily motivated, such as the aforementioned Goldface. He liked gold, had golden skin, had a gold covered cage to trap Green Lantern in, and as gold just just so happens to be yellow in tint, we have a credible problem for Green Lantern to overcome. On the other hand, some issues later, he fights Shark, a shark mutated to be humanoid because comics. But Shark has an invisible yellow shield around himself. Because that happens, and so Green Lantern can't attack him. 
chance to smell and indeed not fear. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but if you must go for mute yourselves. <laughs> all right, sorry. Um, where did I get to? Oh yeah, but Shark has an invisible yellow shield around himself because that happens, and so Green Lantern can't attack him directly, and thus Shark is a credible threat. Honest, you believe that, right? But it is amazing just how often people the Green Lantern face just so happen to have some yellow theme to them. Unfortunately, Javelin uses yellow javelins. The demolition team crew has yellow construction equipment. At least the Yellow Peril, a skyjacking gang, dressed in yellow to deliberately take advantage of that disadvantage. In some cases, Professor Zoom, the Flash's arch nemesis, could also menace the Green Lantern. He's all in yellow. Professor yeah, they, they, yeah, the bad guys should have had a, a hero swap, shouldn't they? Quite a few times. I know, which is worse, Professor Zoom or the Reverse Flash? He goes by both names. I think Professor Zoom is more fifties. Um, so, but if you're going for camp, then go with Professor Zoom. I don't want to go with Professor Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, carry on, Matt. Sorry. At least the Yellow Peril, a skyjacking gang dressed in yellow, to deliberately take advantage of that disadvantage. In some cases, the villains were defeated because they weren't actually fought by Green Lantern, despite being in the Green Lantern comic. In other cases, Green Lantern could simply pick up a non-yellow item and use that to hit the yellow item. In one amusing example from the Green Lantern Corps, Brion of Sector 24 had to protect sentient trees on a planet with yellow sand, with his ring charge running out. Unfortunately, the harvester was yellow and was able to destroy anything thrown into it, except the indestructible power ring. Another example in an application of physics... While fighting some guardian children, Hal Jordan flew at near light speed so that his green power would be red-shifted to yellow by the time it hit. Oh, nice. Associated with all this is Sinestro, a Green Lantern that ran his sector by his own rules. He became at odds with the more humanitarian Hal Jordan and ended up banished from the core. However, he wanted vengeance and sided with the weaponers of Quad from a parallel dimension who already had their own signature yellow weapons. Together they developed the Yellow Rings, and this nicely gave Green Lantern a reoccurring villain to fight that tied him to the Green Lantern side, rather than the usual Earth-based menaces. Later, Sinestro would head his own Sinestro Corps. The color yellow became associated with fear, and the Sinestro Corps works by causing fear in others, which is at odds with other rings as they were in the bearers expressing that emotion, not causing it. But where does this weakness come from? from the need to give the superhero a flaw, one might say, much the same as Alan Scott couldn't use his ring on wood, but there are incontinuity reasons for it. The first was that in order to create the giant Green Lantern battery that powers everything, the Guardians had to create it with a yellow impurity. However, it was revealed that this was deliberately introduced by the Guardians to create a weakness, and indeed could be removed, meaning some rings could work on anything. Later, Carl Rayner would have such a ring, which also removed the 24-hour charge limit, meaning the battery power wore out when the charge was used up, as per a normal battery. However, after those events, it was revealed, again as things are in comics, that the yellow impurity was actually because of the creature called Parallax that was held captive in the central battery. More on that later. Parallax was the embodiment of the emotion of fear, which had a yellow colour associated with it. It escaped the battery, infected Hal Jordan, and led to a number of events that explained Hal's ruined reputation. The inability to impact on Yellow is actually Green Lantern's giving in to their fear. And, to be honest, associating Yellow with cowardice is, of course, an idea that is already in culture, so that works nicely. To be able to affect Yellow, Green Lanterns need to subsume their fear, and it is on that basis that the Green Lanterns are chosen. Not because they don't experience fear, but because they can overcome it. This is the emotional spectrum, an interesting package that does respect existing continuity, but builds on it, although it does mean there are seven different lantern cores. And oddly, yellow is the only colour that affects lanterns. Do they have to be angry to affect red? No, 
Do they need to be hopeful to move blue? Nope. And so on. And as already mentioned, yellow fear is the only power that runs on causing that emotion in others, not from the bearer's emotions. Mm. So we've come a long way from yellow weakness and inspired a lot of ideas. And this is a great example of working within an adaptation rather than abandoning it, although that was done as well. For a good writer, the yellow weakness is no story weakness. Speaking, by the way, of racist characters with the name Something Face, uh, anyone know who I'm going to mention now? Thomas Kalmaku ring any bells? No. Thomas Kalmaku is a fictional character, a supporting character associated with the Green Lantern in comic books published by DC Comics. He was created by writer John Broom and penciler Gil Kane. So this is like, you know, way early Green Lantern. He was of Inuit extraction. Oh, oh no. Yep. Oh, for, no. His name, for, uh, he was like a little, like a, a, a Robin character for Green Lantern. And his name was Pieface. Because, folks, he had oh. slitty eyes. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. In more recent times, he has been rechristened, as he bloody should be, Thomas Kalmaku, the name of a chap and not some derogatory racist slang that Prince Philip would come up with. So, yeah, that's uh, he's a character who's been kind of shunted to the back and forgotten about in Green Lantern mythology. But, yeah, he was basically the, uh, the Robin or the Speedy or the Aqualad or the Bucky of uh, Green Lantern. Back in the 70s, starting with Green Lantern Volume 2, issue number 76, Hal Jordan travelled America with his friend Oliver Queen. The comic became Green Lantern and Green Arrow, and was a chance for writer Dennis O'Neill, with illustration duty given to Neil Adams, to tackle political and social issues in what was ostensibly a kid's comic. Uh, the often opposing but rarely absolute views of somewhat right-wing lawman Hal Jordan and irascible liberal Oliver Queen formed the backbone of a great deal of fairly groundbreaking character-based storytelling. Then in the early 90s, with DC Comics sales flagging, Hal got mixed up in a rather bizarre set of circumstances that saw him eventually go crazy and start killing the rest of the Green Lantern Corps left, right and centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For more on this deeply unpopular decision, let's go to Movie Bob and his big picture show. During the drawn-out climax of DC's drawn-out Death and Return of Superman crossover, which we'll talk about another time, Hal Jordan's hometown of Coast City and all its citizens were destroyed by the villain Mongol and Hank Henshaw the cyborg Superman. Hey, I said we'll talk about it another time. Hal did not take this well. In the subsequent Green Lantern miniseries Emerald Twilight, when the Guardians told Hal Jordan he wasn't allowed to use his powers to resurrect the city, he had kind of a tantrum about the whole thing. He fought and depowered and or killed the entire Green Lantern Corps, also Sinestro, and by proxy, all but one of the Guardians, then absorbed all the green energy from the central power battery that previously powered all the rings, and was transformed into a supervillain called Parallax. Gambit, the last surviving Guardian, managed to get the last remaining ring to a graphic artist named Kyle Rayner, making him the new, and at the time only, Green Lantern. To put things in context, this was 1994, roughly two to three years before the internet would be widely in mainstream use and change the fandom-creator interaction dynamic forever. So not only was turning the main character for three decades of the series into a genocidal supervillain and replacing him with a new young guy we'd never heard of, ballsy to the point of insanity, it was also a huge surprise. Seriously, people did not see this coming. And it did not go over well. At all. And not just in the normal comic fans hate change way. This got ugly. And it got ugly in a big way. Replacing a traditional Silver Age DC stalwart with a hip college age newcomer was, to many, symbolic of industry-wide disrespect for tradition just on its own merits. But turning Hal evil to do it? People were pissed. 
In addition, there was also a perceived pseudo-political element in play for some fans. Hal Jordan had always been DC's square-jawed, old-school military tough guy. John Wayne in green tights, basically. Transforming him into a monster and replacing him not only with some young punk, but some young punk artist? A lot of people read that as DC trying to be quote-unquote politically correct, or anti-military, or feminizing the culture, or attacking traditional masculine role models. The usual crap that gets regurgitated by the real-life cotton hills of the world whenever stuff like this goes down. Anyway, Crazy Hal, now Parallax, became the big bad supervillain of DC's next giant company-wide crossover, Zero Hour, in which he tried to destroy the history of the universe in order to fix all the bad stuff that made him insane. Ultimately, Jordan regained his sanity just long enough for a final act of big-time heroism, sacrificing his own life to put things right. For some fans, this was enough to redeem the controversial storyline. For others, not so much. Yes, the admittedly crummy send-off DC gave Hal got so many readers so angry that even though Kyle Rayner would be Green Lantern for almost a decade, the character never really got the chance he probably deserved. Fan opposition to the new direction was massive and fiercely organized, especially considering that this was mostly pre-web. An entire movement sprang up among fans who wanted DC to fix the perceived damage done to Jordan and ultimately reinstate him as the one true Green Lantern. And the movement had a name. Hal's Emerald Attack Team, with attack later changed to the less deliberately antagonistic-sounding Action. Whatever the acronym actually stood for, Heat undertook what is easily the biggest, longest, and most preposterously powerful act of fanboy pissing and moaning in the history of fanboy pissing and moaning. A decade-long campaign that even consisted of taking out paid advertisements to protest the fictional events of a comic book. But that's not the scary part. The scary part is, they won. Attempts were made to even out the situation, such as having Hal's soul take up the mantle of the Spectre, a supernatural hero who, eh, you know what, we don't have time to explain what the Spectre is. Just think of him as Spawn, but fighting for the other team, okay? Okay. But Jordan's fans weren't having it. They wanted Hal to be the Green Lantern again, and they also wanted DC to somehow absolve him of guilt for the acts of mass murder he'd committed as Parallax. In 2004, fan-favorite writer and noted Hal Jordan fan Jeff Johns set about giving them what they wanted with Green Lantern Rebirth, in which Johns not only took to resurrecting Jordan and repairing his reputation, but also smaller details like making Yellow work as a more credible weakness. Editor's note, Jeff Johns turned out to be... Not great in his professionalism, and that is putting it mildly. Here's what he came up with. As it turns out, the light spectrum from which light-based energy powers like the power rings would draw from is connected to, get ready, the emotional spectrum, and that certain powerful emotions correspond to certain colors, green being willpower and yellow being fear. In addition, each color-slash-feeling is embodied by one of a pantheon of godlike monsters. Green is a space whale named Ion, while yellow is a giant bug demon named... Parallax. That's right, Hal Jordan didn't just turn evil and start killing everyone, he was possessed by the yellow space bug of fear. So Hal comes back to life, all the old Green Lantern paraphernalia comes back too, and everyone forgives Hal except kinda sorta Batman because... Because Batman. Oh, and Sinestro came back too, kicking off the next big event, the Sinestro Core War. Yes, Sinestro Corps. If you didn't think they'd take the whole spectrum-slash-emotional-spectrum thing and run with it as an excuse to create a load of new marketable characters all at once, you haven't been watching this show for very long. I'm Bob, and that's The Big Picture. In 2004, some seven years before the new 52 retcon, Jeff Johns began a series of arcs that would expand on the simple green good will versus evil yellow fear. 
John's conceived that there could be more colour rings out there with more groups of differently motivated people to wield them. So first up you have Red Lanterns, motivated by rage and led by an unpleasant, angry, beefy chap named Atrocitus. Then there are Violet Lanterns, or Star Sapphires, motivated by love. Uh, the original Star Sapphire was the name of several villainesses who took this role, including, for a time, Hal Jordan's main squeeze, Carol Ferris. Now they're effectively goodies, and there's a whole gaggle of them. The Indigo Lantern Tribe are a group of more primitive-seeming Navi-style dudes motivated by compassion. The power of the Orange Lantern preys upon the potential wearer's avarice. As such, there is only a single, wretched representative who guards and covets his ring. And he's very sad. Yes. There, are, there need to be more Larflees in every lantern stuff. He is. He cracks me up. He uh, makes me sad, actually. He's he's got him. Um, not just that, when you hear about his actual backstory, it's even worse. Oh, yeah. And the blue lanterns, representing hope, are the passive, spiritual, airbending Buddhist monk types. A great deal of thought went into this process. The colors laid out form a spectrum with green in the middle balancing out all of the others. Hope opposes fear. Compassion opposes rage. Love opposes avarice. There are also black death lanterns opposing holy white lanterns, as seen in the Blackest Night storyline. And this kind of deeply considered law adaptation breathes new life into stories begun when the world was younger, more innocent, and that the audiences were simple and undemanding. Like John Byrne making Lex Luthor a jealous businessman obsessed with being Superman himself, as opposed to just a mad scientist. So, Sharon, this is a part of the uh, mythology that you suddenly sat up and took notice during uh, reading um, Blackest Night. You're like, right, okay, now I care. Um, do you want to talk a bit about the spectrum? Um, well, I don't know if I can. If there's really much more that I can say, sort of with regards to its actual structure, I think you've pretty much covered the uh, the essentials. But what really grabbed me about it, because it was, I, I sat down and read Blackest Night and and sort of hadn't really been quite that fascinated by Green Lantern up to that point and then suddenly went oh my god this is awesome and it's basically and this is something that I've said before basically anything that gives a sense of a greater universe absolutely fascinates me anything that makes a story feel that there is more to it than just the little bit that you can see um, and these little windows on the original idea of, of sort of, you know, this green willpower that could be utilised to um, to defend people and, and reach far corners of the universe and, and protect individuals and, and worlds, suddenly opening out into this uh, more refined, subtler way of looking at, at the different aspects of human emotion, which is a, a really essential core of what any story to really grab me needs to be about, but doing it on such a, a literally galactic scale. Um, and even before we started watching the Green Lantern animated series, it did have a reminiscence of um, of Avatar for me, that, as in um, Legend of Aang and uh, Legend of Korra, and that idea of the the elements of the world and and. 
it's not even so much looking at the individual pieces of the puzzle. It's the idea that when you put them all together, they make something all-encompassing. The part of it that incorporated the different emotions being running counter to each other as well. Um, At the heart of all of these ideas of of different elements of things is the, the notion of balance and things you know, weighing each other out and, and there are two sides to sort of, not even, not even just two in this case, obviously, but there are different sides to things and it's, it's not as simple as good versus evil. Mm. But if you look at the way that the spectrum is divided up, um, and, uh, in fact, I think the, the guardians say in, um, the, the, at one point in the Sinestro Core War that the reason that they decided that willpower was the, the, emotion that they would base their structure on is because it was at the centre of the spectrum and it was balance. Um, and then the introduction of fear unbalances that um, because it's it's on that's it's on the more negative side of the emotional range. But then you have uh, you know love that counters uh, something on the other side um you've got avarice uh, that's it yeah love love that counters avarice and and was it compassion counters fear and um compassion opposes rage ah what about hope hope opposes fear because it's the opposite you can have hope and you can have fear and you can have a mixture of the two but one eventually has to win out Gotcha. Sorry, I was thinking of the um, the bits in the animated series where the blue lanterns literally switch off the red lanterns. Yeah, hope affects all the rest of them, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, hope and fear are very, very raw, primal viewpoints on the future. Yeah, but I think what really grabbed me about um, the the way that they worked it all into Blackest Night was that you you didn't simply have the good guy emotions on one side fighting the bad guy emotions on the other side. They all had to work together Mm. to have a hope of, of taking down death. But even death, as it was presented in that series, wasn't just natural death. And again, it's it's often quite um, uh, oversimplified in in particularly a lot of mythological story that that death is evil. Um, but it wasn't that straightforward. It was this idea of of death being the neutralising of of all emotion and effectively the neutralising of life. Um, and that again was something that they expanded on in the uh, the animated series, which was part of the reason why I took to that so much. I think. If you look at compassion opposing rage, that's your paragon and renegade. It's it's ruling with cooperation and, and thinking about other people versus your own personal anger over a situation and your own personal feelings, which um, can often be uh, entwined in other people as well. But it's it those are two very specific and opposed reactions to a situation. And love and avarice are all bound in how you deal with other people and things. So, for example, if you def- desperately want someone and to be with someone, but you also love them and you understand that them not being with you is, is the better thing, then you let them go. But with avarice, you grab hold of that person or that thing as hard as you possibly can and you crush it to your breast. Well, under those circumstances, it becomes about possession. It's not really about love at all. It's mm. it's this thing is mine. The fact that that thing is a person is um, it sort of falls by the wayside. But yeah. um, so love basically is is being in a, a scenario where you are allowing that 
person or thing to be free of you, despite the yes. fact that it's close to you, that if you genuinely love it, you aren't grabbing hold of it and chaining it up. Well, indeed, because if it's if it's love that you feel for that person, then that's not. Um, I think the the idea of love being about self sacrifice when necessary, um, and sometimes that sacrifice might even be the sacrifice of the the possibility of being with that person if it's not if that's not right for them. But if you you know if you genuinely love them, then that's you you would recognise that and let them go. But obviously uh, these all interchange as well, and rage and, and love come into uh, a diame- uh, nearly diametric opposition in the, uh, the the animated show as well, at least once. I was just going to say compassion can counter uh, avarice quite neatly because mm. you you would need to have a massive amount of compassion for somebody to understand their avarice and mm. and accommodate that within them. And as I said, hope and fear are two ways of processing the future, and, and you literally have to choose one of them. You know, like I said, there can always be a mix of the two, but they're diametrically opposed. And what really, one of the things that really caught my attention about the the whole Blackest Night series was when they started dishing out rings to um, other DC characters, oh, none of whom we're going to mention because it's that's a really cool moment. It, yeah. it is really great, and I I think they were spot on with every one of them. Even though some of them, it's like really, but then you think actually <laughs> yes, that works. Totally, yeah. But no spoilers there because that that's a really cool moment. It is. Uh, any of you guys want to talk about this spectrum? Because obviously it's a, it's a huge thing. I think you pretty much covered this. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, I just love the fact that Jeff Johns managed to make everything make sense. Yeah. And this is like 2004, 2005 that he started doing this. So yeah. like really ages after this. This has been going for like 50 years. Just, just the Hal Jordan stuff. The only issue I have with the whole emotional spectrum is that... Um, the Green Lantern Corps being based around willpower. Mm. Willpower is not an emotion. No. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was like, so the, the 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 starting point doesn't actually fit into the emotional spectrum all that neatly. But um, I, I, I certainly like the concept of it. I think the fact that it balances you can you can actually exercise your will through all six of these. So it's kind of more of a conduit. You could argue that. Itself. That ra- although they call it willpower, what they mean is courage and focus. I think what the Green Lanterns meant to say <laughs> <laughs> was courage, which could also be uh, considered hope. But, but technically, yeah, willpower is is. It, it, I suppose in part it is a counter to emotion itself because it's about gritting your teeth and doing what you have to do. Yeah, willpower is action. Yeah. Which sidelining emotion in order to be able to act which so, makes a lot of sense from where the guardians standpoint is where they are as far from emotion as they can be at least they try to stay away from that so the one energy they harness is the one that is probably farthest from base absolutely. emotion as they can get yeah. am I the only person who thinks they're basically Vulcans by the way they're, they're very very Vulcan in terms of, I mean, this was uh, written, what, a good 20 years before uh, Star Trek, but at the same time, they must have been slowly Vulcanized over the years. <laughs> That's a word in this context. It is, but I don't Vulcanized think it quite rubber. works like that. <laughs> they're, they're very hard to like. Yeah. Lyra calls them, like I say, blue granddads. <laughs> Including the women. Grumpy blue granddads, I might add. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, that, that's one of my bullet points. Uh, any, anyone want to explain the Guardians? So they, they're some of the oldest creatures in the in the universe, right? Yeah, basically, um, they took it upon themselves to. <laughs> yeah, that's, I say it like yep. that because that's what it is. They took it upon themselves that they would bring chaos, not sorry, order to the universe and stand up for all that is justice. Uh-huh. The problem with that is they're very exclusionary with how they take things, and mm. their first idea didn't quite work out so well, <laughs> which actually helped create some of the other core. Actually, someone said on the forums, which this is something that bears weight, actually. It's almost like the Green Lantern core is its own worst enemy. It's almost like if they stop yep. doing stuff, then the universe would be in a lot less danger, because it seems like they are the, the, the sowers of each of these sort seeds of discord. Well, it all seems to relate back to some shit that the Guardians did a billion years ago. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, we did that. Sorry. <laughs> and we clean it up, pal. Cleaning Look, up did... their own mess for millennia. So, there's this thing we didn't tell you about. Um, yeah, it's coming back to bite us in the ass. But we're not going to tell you about it. Hello. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, that's happened more than once with them, too. Yeah. You think they'd learn? <laughs> well, being infinitely wise and impressive beings, they don't learn. They know. Even the wisest <laughs> cannot see all ends. They don't really seem wise to me. They just seem stubborn. And yep. like you know, we, we know what we know, and that's what we got. I mean, they're frequently wrong, and Hal's instincts tend to prove them. You know, to, to, to prove them wrong time and again. It's like, well, we happen to be in possession of all the facts. And like I said, the fact that they're seeing everything over a great, great uh, period of time, it makes them quite short-sighted. Or I suppose in this case, long-sighted. The problem is that they're, unlike most characters where they're created, where they exist, and they live over a period of time, they normally act as observers, whereas they've taken the role of interferers. Well, interferers? It sounds worse than it is. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of what they do is kind of interfering. <laughs> yes, yes it is. This is true. Lantern, Weakness and Strength, by Name Chaibani. I was first introduced to Green Lantern when the Justice League TV show was first coming out. I asked my ever-knowledgeable comic book fan of a father about all the new superheroes like Wonder Woman, Flash, and Green Lantern. I asked for the basic stuff, powers, secret identities, girlfriends or boyfriends, and weaknesses. My dad, probably chuckling under his breath, told me that Green Lantern's weakness was the color yellow. This has always been a little weird for me. After all, how could a color be lethal? But over the years, I've learned more about the character, his mythos, and what makes him so interesting. The powers of Green Lantern, unlike the Flash or Wonder Woman, are all completely psychological. Green Lantern's ring is made of willpower, and the ring will only work so long as the bearer's mentality is strong enough to face all the dangers around him. So what undermines that? The undoing of willpower, of courage in the face of danger, is fear. Everyone is afraid. 
Everyone gets scared of the dark, or of spiders, or of heights, or of losing a loved one. And that fear can always make us hesitate, make us stop in our tracks. Hal Jordan is scared of losing a loved one. Kyle Rayner is scared of failing others. Jon Stewart is scared of failing himself. This makes the Green Lantern Corps a little more relatable than heroes like Superman or Batman. What makes them special is that their powers don't come from another planet or years of training. They come from the simple yet forever difficult choice of deciding that some things are worth risking your fears. That evil, no matter how intimidating, should not escape our sight. Green Lantern is a hero in ways most approachable to us. And I want to be a better person for it, if only to know that I, too, could hold and use that wondrous ring. Okay, so let's talk about Green Lantern in animation to date, before the animated series. Um, there were a few brief appearances uh, in uh, TV shows here and there. Um, the, the first notable one was uh, actually Super Friends. Did it, does anyone ever watch the Super Friends? No, before my time. <sighs> Imagine a Hanna-Barbera Justice League. Ugh. It's... Do I have to? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there could be people who are, like, in their 40s who are like, What are you talking about? This is the greatest show ever! But it's, it's terrible to someone like me. I can't watch it. And obviously, I wasn't raised... It's weird watching. It's like, I should have seen this when I was a kid. Like, on TV, it was... It's, it's sort of like the late 70s. So it should really have been screened around about the same time we were watching things like Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends and The Incredible Hulk in the early 80s. Um, but we just never saw it in the UK, and, and it's terrible. And I'm not going to go into it too much, but basically it's the same kind of, you know, that the banana-suited men would attack and accost Hal Jordan, and he'd, he'd figure out some way of doing, you know, of cutting through their giant yellow ribbon that tied into an old oak tree or something. <laughs> I just made that one up. I would not be surprised if that was it. Gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. Superman! Batman and Robin! With their space monkey, Bleak. Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. Okay, enough of the comics. Let's get round to the 2011 movie. Starring Ryan pre-Deadpool Reynolds. A great light has gone out in the universe. Worlds annihilated. Lanterns. We face an unprecedented danger. An enemy powerful enough to destroy entire civilizations. To fight this enemy, the ring chose a human. But I don't need to tell you your duty. Dying purple alien. 
So, this is the chosen human. The ring turns thought into reality. Its limits are only what you can imagine. A sword? Oh, human. Remember, your enemy is not gonna play fair. Is that what I think it is? An alien life form, Doctor. The first that mankind has ever encountered. Son, we're gonna get you well again. I've never felt better in my life. They said they wouldn't have chosen me. If they didn't see something, I don't see it. I see it. You had the ability to overcome fear. Here. No problem. If you die, innocent lives will be lost. Your world will be annihilated. Help me save my planet. Fight it. Fight it with me. Brightest day. Blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's light! In 2011, Warner Brothers finally took one step out of the warm, comforting waters of Batman and Superman and tried what nobody could argue was their best, to bring the world another of DC's superhero properties with Green Lantern. Originally mooted in 1997 and offered to Kevin Smith following his Superman Reborn experience... Smith rejected it, and the project was deformed into a potentially side-splitting comedy starring Jack Black. Right. For real? Picture this. Jack Black is a sort of a schlubby guy, and um, he's on a, uh, a, a sh- one of the, like, Survivor shows, eating a coyote head. And, uh, the, you know, PJ and Duncan are saying, This is the man without fear! I swear to God. Abensur's ship comes down and the ring goes off to find Hal Jordan doesn't find Hal Jordan finds Jack Black instead Jack Black with the ring foils some robberies and we learn a bit about the Green Lantern Corps but in a kind of a fucking around kind of way and not actually sounds like an MTV skit yeah yes yeah exactly that's what I thought when I was, it was like, no. They this did stuff, this with really, Spider-Man. Yeah. It, they yeah. did yeah. Spider-Man yeah. and Lord of the Rings and like, you know, it's always Jack Black and it's always desperately unfunny. It's like the opposite of funny. It's like they've got, they, they've got scriptwriters that actually write lines that are the opposite of funny. It's like watching, I just feel myself getting sadder and angrier every time watching these fucking awful things. Damn, I'm all webbed out. Don't worry about it, Jack. I got it. Wonder Woman! Yep, and my invisible jet is right over there. Let's move! <laughs> he hit his head! He hit his head on the invisible plane! Oh, I don't get most of these references, but... The, the script of this thing basically had Jack Black just being brought to Oa and learning a bit about this and that, and the, the end of it... There's a, mis- a, a meteorite made of yellow stuff that's about to hit Earth, and he moves Earth with his Green Lantern ring, which doesn't seem physically possible. But anyway, um, it doesn't seem like a, like Jack Black would have the willpower to do that. How would he put it back? <laughs> but then he puts it back. But that causes terrible natural disasters um, that completely and utterly uh, screw up the planet and destroy things. So hmm, this is not a lie. He creates Superman out of his ring 
in green and get Superman to fly round and round and round the Earth to turn <sighs> up just like in the first film. And then, rather than moving the Earth, he stands in front of the uh, meteorite, but because he's displaying no fear, the meteorite explodes against him and dissipates into nothing, just because comics. And then he and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps uh, eat coyote heads. Uh, uh, Pardon? Okay. Because that was what he was eating for this Survivor show. And it was right. like, yeah, you want uh, to that had been... I'm not sure why that's bit the bit that makes the least sense. <laughs> I would have had to walk to Hollywood and punch someone in the face. Just... Oh my gosh. This was done just before Batman Begins, and it's very telling that it was just before Batman Begins, but it was after Spider-Man. That's what's baffling about this. Marvel are making films like Spider-Man and X-Men at this stage, in the the early 2000s, and really fucking killing it. And the last DC film (laughs) was Batman and Robin. So they're opening Gambit for opening the superhero market and going back to things is not the Batman old, Batman begins, uh, Batman triumphant that they've got sort of knocking around the place, the year one thing that they're trying to do. It's the Green Lantern farce starring Jack Black, the new it's, hot stuff. It's shallow Hal Jordan. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Just, can you just drop the mic at this point? Because <laughs> I love... How, uh, Shallow How is a great uh, film, but something like Gulliver's Travels, that's the sort of thing I'm thinking of when it comes to, uh, uh for, for this Jack Black film. And I love me some Jack Black, but he has been in some shit. Like yeah, year it's one. It's been some good ones. Interestingly, has nothing to do with actual year one. Um, tempted to say, does this not follow on from Schumacher's We're Making Cartoons attitude? Yeah, we're making a cartoon here. Making a cartoon, uh, you know. Uh, I think they just didn't know what the hell they were doing. In 2004, they dropped the idea as Batman Begins was going into production, and Sirius replaced Camp Farce in the thematic stakes. And they realised, oh, hang on, we've got to play like big boys now. Now, having listened to what that, what it could have been, kind of makes the Ryan Reynolds movie seem a bit better. At least they took the 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 the, the mythology sort of seriously. I mean, the whole film. It almost takes it too seriously. Compared to that, it sounds like they tried with this one. Mm. Sorry, I gotta run. Make yourself at home, okay? There's uh, water in the tap. I think they did try. I mean, there's Mm. more than a handful of things that they actually don't do badly at all. Let's list the Um, good bits, actually. Yeah, now that you mention it. So, yeah, Sharon, you start. Good bits. Okay. Uh, I really like Carol Ferris's character. Yep. Um, I I know people have said that is it Blake Lively? Yeah. Did a, a really good job. I personally think they could have got a better actor to play her, mm-hmm. but I thought the character was was pretty well handled and and pretty well rounded. I particularly like the I've seen you naked. You think I'm not going to recognise you because I can't see your cheekbones. <laughs> um. So there was that. Reynolds was not terrible. No, he wasn't terrible. You know, Just he miscast. did. He did a decent job of what he could, but he was still being, you know, Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan rather than Hi, I'm Hal Jordan. It was, it was, it was a twist. Mm. The fact that in this script, 
Hal is called upon to fuck up repeatedly and still come out the winner. Mm. Yeah. And that's not his fault. He was a bit Van Wilder still, you know, after all these years. There's a point when he first recites the oath. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. And he's almost crying at this point. He really threw himself into that that one moment, and that it's gave like me chills. yeah, at that point it it's fantastic. serious, and it's it's that you know props to he, the, him. He takes that. he takes it seriously. That's yeah. the thing. There's this wonderful little uh, bit that I'm going to play for you now, where um, it was actually a Comic Con. Some little tiny kid asked oh, him yes. from the audience. Good. This is a question for Ryan. What does it feel like to oh, say the Green Lantern Oath? <laughs> it sounds a little like this. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. But those who worship evil's might, beware my power. Green Lantern's light. He steals himself and then reads it out with deadly serious conviction and then holds up his ring and then the little kid holds up his ring and it's like this little sort of fist bump across the generations and the uh, the, the spectrum of the Hollywood and uh, consumer and it's just a lovely moment and it, it, I couldn't help feeling like warm feelings for uh, Reynolds for that you know he, he's a nice guy but and I believe at this point in the pre-production of the film they were not, you know, whoever the powers that be were, mm. were not given Ryan permission to actually speak the oath anywhere in public. Ah. And this was the first mm. time that he had done so. You may not speak the oath in public. <laughs> they sound like the Guardians. <laughs> Only not as wise. We know best, Hal Jordan. <laughs> Only actual Green Lanterns are allowed to say it. <laughs> anyway, um, other good things about this... Mark I mean, Strong. Yep, Mark Strong is good. He's got a sort of a, a shape. He has, again, similarly uncanny conviction in, in the way he sort of reads his lines and the seriousness about the way he does it. But that's Mark Strong for you. He's a great, great actor. The fact that they put Amanda Waller in it was good. The fact that they didn't really do anything with her character was Or bad. that she wasn't yeah, that was CCH Pounder. I've been exposed to the Amanda Waller mythos in the, the Justice League and the Justice League Unlimited. And we've seen what she is capable of. And even outside that, I've, I've read some of the other DC stuff that has Amanda Waller show up. And she's always like a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. She's almost and Nick Fury. She's just kind of, oh, hi, I'm Amanda Waller. Oh, hi. <laughs> oh, hi, Al. Oh, hi. <laughs> I have some. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And she gets thrown up against a window and then takes no part in the proceedings. <laughs> Dear Hollywood, stop throwing Angela Bassett away. She's probably the best thing in your movie. Yep. She will wake up somewhere very upset. (laughs) 
And maybe this is why she has a vendetta against I was going to say, it's after this that she got all mad. <laughs> um, other things that are good, when he makes constructs, like, you know, planes and things, those are, like, you know, great fun, and, and they, they look like they should look. I wasn't so keen on the racing car helicopter. Oh, my you know. God. Uh, but yeah. everything else is, is all right. Personally, I like the designs of Tom Ray and Kilowog. Yeah. Yep, they had uh, decent texture to them. I think Kilowog's a bit too realistic looking. I think they could have <laughs> sort of made him look a bit more cartoonish. Well, you can't have Kilowog looking friendly, though. Hmm. Especially not in the live-action style movie. Well, the, the CG live-action movie. <laughs> Uh, Kilowog is a force to be reckoned with in the Lantern Corps. Kilowog here was played by Michael Clark Duncan, who, uh, not content with beating the crap out of one man without fear as the kingpin in Daredevil, is the guy who has to train Hal Jordan. And this is one of the final roles for Michael Clark Duncan, and he will be sorely missed as a man with incredible presence. And voice. I was a big Green Lantern fan, as I was of DC Comics, and all the comic books back in the days, so I was pretty familiar with Green Lantern. Akilawag was one of my favorite characters because he was the only one I could recognize with. <laughs> he was the biggest one. But uh, a lot of people don't know that Kilowog is a very nice and generous person. We're getting close to the point where we can't think of anything good to say about this. Uh, I know we are. Um, again, this is back to uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds. His delivery on several lines is actually memorable and funny. And uh, So let's get these pants off and go play some planes. And when he leaves the uh, woman at the beginning and says... Um, there's uh, Help water in the tap. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great little line. Like some some gems get through, but most of the rest of the script is pretty forgettable. And some of that stuff does kind of shine with with Hal because Hal, as a character, does not have it together, and is yeah. not supposed to have it together in his on Earth life. Uh, the only thing he's kind of got a good handle on is being Green Lantern. Mm. Yeah. And the designs of Oa and the Guardians with their extremely long red shawls. Yeah, the, the Green Lantern Corps themselves are actually pretty impressive. I'm not big on the really long red clothes. Too. They seem impractical. I was surprised <laughs> that they had the the whole Guardian area was kind of out in open air on the planet because the Guardians, I don't know, them just having it designed that way feels like the Guardians are, we have an open door policy, oh, Lanterns, come on over. I just, I just had an image of them saying, it's, it's kind of cold up here. Why? Do you <laughs> we have to sit here forever. <laughs> no, see, they don't feel cold. Oh, nice. What? Or any emotion. <laughs> um, if if that guy's gone, why do we just leave the wreckage of his chair? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Just to remind us. But we don't forget stuff. <laughs> um, Matt, anything good about looking Green behind Lantern the curtain, Jerome? Twenty eleven. <laughs> That's what we um, need for, Gondor. Uh, yeah, everything I, I thought already has been mentioned. Um, I didn't hate the film, but uh, it wasn't overly memorable, to be honest. Okay, let's talk about what sucks about Green Lantern, the two thousand eleven movie. Right. First off, the fucking costume. Yeah. Right, here is the issue with the costume. Um, Nyla Dixon, creator of the costumes for Lord of the Rings, was on staff for this film. She came up with this sort of very organic-looking design for the, the, the costume, and sort of it had to seem like musculature. 
and um, had to have all these lights and, and stuff. And it was very carefully designed. And the ring, they kept going back to the drawing board on because they had to make it absolutely perfect. And if you look at the actual prop, you never really got to see it very close, but it, it's like a, a Lord of the Rings ring. It's that ornately carved. And that's brilliant. However, <sighs> Ryan Reynolds wasn't really wearing costume. He was wearing like a green body stocking, and they yes. CG'd a costume onto him, which gave him a really wibbly-looking rubber body, which, if you've ever seen the crappy Alice in Wonderland film by um, uh, Tim Burton, uh, the Crispin Glover character has a similar sort of real head and horrible wibbly CG body, which makes him look like a horrible wibbly CG creation with a weird, like, um, uncanny valley head on top. And every moment he's in that costume, your brain is going, no, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And at no point along the way did they go, this doesn't work. Let's put him in an actual costume. It's even worse when they actually put the face mask on him. Yeah. It just looks like this green blob that's been smeared across his face. paint at times. Disgusting blob. It doesn't look real. Nothing about that costume looks real. Now, on one hand... It's from space, so it would look sort of weird. On the other, you're trying to convince us it's real. So forgo mm. the fact that it should look a bit weird and make it look like, you know, skin-tight armor. What's, yeah, I what's... mean, we don't have to have the spandex look of the early superheroes. It doesn't have to be that, but it can be something that has substance to it. Yeah. It needs to have a, a sense of texture, and I'm trying to think of a, an equivalent. I mean, like the, the Superman uh, costume for uh, uh, Man of Steel, for example. Absolutely. You know, it, it, a lot of people really hate it, but I, I like the fact that it, it felt like it was an actual suit. You know what it was? It was the the lanterns, all of them, because it was this skin tight. You couldn't tell where you know their body. Yeah. Mm. wasn't un- like you could always see like breathing and everything through the costume they looked like you could just smack them around and knock them over they looked weak because they had nothing covering them mm. i'm going to send you a picture from injustice uh, the video game which uh, i actually think they did a pretty good job on uh, Hal's costume there it felt it felt like it was an actual you know uh, a, a multi-textured multi-layered suit which oh, was never cool still yeah. um, it was actual material now at some point in the uh, mid period of the comics they started taking all the folds of material out of the suit and um, like all of the black it was supposed to be just absolute black because it was composed of energy and light and it wasn't actually supposed to be fabric and you could say well technically it's a construct of the ring so it's not supposed to look real but Again, you're serving two masters here, the, the law and the movie-going public, who are used to seeing real people. And every time we see something that's fully CG, our brains say, no, that's not real. You can't fool our brains, and you yeah. can't convince that part of our brains it's supposed to... Yeah, I miss the white gloves as well. You can't convince our part, that, that part of our brains that it's for the greater good. Because the, that part of our brain will go, no, wrong, that doesn't work. So, I mean, it, it sounds like we're bitching, but basically, the entire time he's in this costume, he looks wibbly, and there's no other better word to describe him. The other thing is that a hero is defined by his villains. Uh, now, we watched um, Star Trek Into Darkness uh, the other day, and uh, we're going to do a podcast on that sometime soon. Benedict Cumberbatch in that was absolutely incredible. He dominated the screen. He ate up the camera. He chewed his lines and spoke with memorable venom and vigor. 
that is something that really sinks in. You think, Christ, how are the crew of the Enterprise going to defeat this? He seems insurmountable. In Green Lantern, we get a big floaty, floopy cloud thing with a face in it, which never rips the natural villain. Huge mistake. But even worse than that, we get Hector Hammond. Now, I don't know much about Hector Hammond from the comics, but I like Peter Sarsgaard as an actor, by and large, in things like Garden State. Uh, He's a very intense young man, and... uh, but he's capable of doing hammy performances in things like Skeleton Key. So you've got to watch him. And um, Martin Campbell, director of Casino Royale and Goldeneye and The Mask of Zorro, who's done fantastic movies before, wasn't watching him. <laughs> and he allowed him to turn in the most pathetic, super hammy, cringeworthy, crawly, boring, tepid, like, get off my screen right now. Ever, ever, he's got this great big grotesque deformed melty head. Sharon, what were you saying about it being about nerd versus jock? Because that really did bug me as well. Yeah, well, he's sort of the the brain, and they emphasise that by giving him this big egghead. Quite literally, Um, he's a disappointment to his father because he has no self confidence whatsoever and no ability to put himself out there. And he tries to prove himself by the implementation of his study and and his work. Um, And and yeah, it's totally this. Here's the the complete opposite of that. Is this big lantern jawed? pun intended um blonde muscly adonis adored person i mean wearing a costume that accentuates his musculature as well yeah either that or pants a demigod yeah someone adored by women versus a grotesque andy circus could have played the same character but with frightening intensity do you know what I mean? As in, uh, oh yeah, he could have rendered a character that you felt that. sorry for, but at the same time were terrified of. But Peter Sarsgaard seemed at some point during production to go, "Oh fuck this," <laughs> and just I turned in the maybe, worst performance ever. I think maybe somebody told him, "Don't forget, hey, this is a cartoon." Maybe because that feels like how he kind of was yeah. running. Yeah, he just tends, especially when he's, he's throwing his powers around, he's just this sort of grinning moron, and it never at any point makes you think, but you never think, this guy could really take on Hal Jordan and win. You just no. think, at what point is Hal Jordan going to trick the really smart guy with a, a boneheaded, easy trick? Doesn't take long. It was just lazy. Yeah. Is what, is what the whole Hector Hammond thing was. Now, Hector Hammond, is a pitiful character uh, in the comic books as well. I mean, he's he's not somebody that you're terribly threatened by, mm. but you just feel sorry for him because all he has is his essentially is his obsession with Carol and Hal. Yeah. But in this show, they were like, let's give him some daddy issues and just see what happens. Here's a suggestion that would have been better, and they had all the elements present for this. Make Hector Hammond the uh, red herring bad guy. Still make it a powerful performance, but make him someone that Hal actually dispatches with relative ease in the end. But make it actually a, a buddy movie with Hal and Sinestro, and the whole time Hal's getting to know him, but he's beginning to wonder that his new partner's starting to drift a little bit too close to the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the aggressive side of things. And basically, at the end... 
it's a face-off between the two of them, and Sinister is like, "You've got to come with me. This is these guys are corrupt, and it, it, he needs to completely have conviction and be very serious about what he's saying to the point where the audience, people are like, maybe the Guardians are corrupt. Maybe I mean I'd go with him. Someone who you, you actually think is not only a match for Hal Jordan, but smarter, more experienced." Someone of of true gravitas. They had him right there, but they saved him for the sequel. Just you know, there's never going to be a sequel if you do a really turgid story. Also, if you hire somebody like Mark Strong on the basis that we'll get him to do all the good stuff in the sequel, yeah, that's that's a waste of his paycheck. Do you know what that reminds me of? The Golden Compass. Yeah, we'll do a good story later. As soon as people pay us for this first half-hour story. What? So, you can't yeah. get a job on the basis of, I'll do... Of potential. Crap work Monday to Wednesday, but I'll come in Thursday and Friday and really pull all the stops out. There's no real conflict. There's no ideological conflict, and that's not explored in any way. It's just a cartoonish, supervillainish type conflict. And because there's no real conflict, there's no real story. There's no tension. It doesn't matter. Earth is threatened by a blah, blah, blah. When Parallax finally emerges and attacks the Earth, it's it's the sort of... The city is in peril. And, like, everyone's running away from what is like... Have you seen the episode of South Park where global warming's coming up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then that one woman falls down and goes, Ah! And it's like, run, one lone woman! You're, you've got to get away from Parallax! <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I half expected her to just sort of just flip about on the ground like a kipper and go... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, and, and then Hal Jordan, like, punches him into the sun or something like that. The end, the Earth is saved. It's the most oh. perfunctory, just straightforward, hey, you kids like Green Latin? Title film ever. If if that's how they could have gotten rid of Parallax, why didn't they do that in the first place? I know! No, we imprison him in a, in, a, in, a, in a prison that basically only takes about three souls to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for one thing, and the, and the whole, let's throw him into the sun thing, Parallax is a being of pure fear energy. Parallax is fear itself. You can't If burn. you throw an yeah. energy being into a burning energy ball of light, you don't destroy it. He could, that's, boom, you could have four more Parallax movies and make $12. Hollywood, go for it. <laughs> could have made $12. <laughs> Somebody in the uh, script meeting said, what are we going to do with Parallax? Oh, I don't know, kill it with fire. Also, the war You're not supposed fear. to take it literally. That's the war on terror. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, putting it out there. You, yeah. you, that's like having a war on jealousy. It's, I mean, it's, it's, you can draw parallels with it right there. But at the same time, you're fighting an abstract concept, and that's more interesting than a big wibbly cloud. It just it just feels like it was it was lazy writing because they wanted a big looking villain of some kind to go with. Yeah. And what and of course they picked like one of the big villains from the the mythos, but they didn't do any real backstory. The backstory and the cool depth behind Parallax is going to take you a few pages to get to get in there and it honestly should take you a few movies i would have loved to see parallax in the third green lantern movie mm. i think that would have been fantastic but ultimately they should have laid the seeds down in the midst of doing the best yes. 
single story they possibly could. Always make every movie as though it's your last. If The Dark Knight had been the last ever Batman film, my God, it doesn't matter whether there's any more. That's brilliant. But uh, what's the Marvel film that this most reminds you of? I don't have one in mind. I'm going to think Silver of Surfer. Really? Four words yeah. the Silver Surfer. Galactus yeah. was made into a giant we're cloud. <laughs> yes. It had cool bits, oh, but at the yeah. same time, it was just sort of boring and silly. That was just before Marvel got really, really good. That was the last yeah. one before before Iron Man. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's not absolutely terrible. It's not like Superman 3 or 4 or Batman and Robin or Batman Forever. Yeah, I mean it's it's still a little bit higher on the scale than those ones, but it's 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 close enough that all you can do is say have some popcorn and we can put this in the Blu-ray player if we want to. Yeah. It's not going to it's not going to turn any heads. It's not going to change any lives. Yeah. But it's it's just so so many other movies do the same thing but with so much more to them that there's no point putting this on. <laughs> it's like if somebody carved a hamburger out of really cheap chocolate. You're like, okay, so uh, this is making me feel a bit queasy. <laughs> Why? <laughs> At least I'm gonna be honest. That, that sort of blew my mind. <laughs> no, I just someone carved a cheeseburger out of cheap chocolate. <laughs> just a decent sized bar of dairy milk, the good stuff, or like really good green and black chocolate. But no, I had to eat this cheap cooking chocolate. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, it, it cost two hundred and two hundred million, two hundred million dollars. That's like Titanic cost that much. I don't quite know where they spent that money. Neither do I. What the fuck did they spend it on? They spent Ryan it on Reynolds hours of processing all of the 3D images. That's all they did was the computer jet. That's what they threw it at the computers. I forgot about but that. It, it doesn't even. A lot of it doesn't even look that great. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's I get going back to Hal Jordan's suit and the mask. It just looks cheap and, and not well done. So to spend two hundred million on that film is blew my mind when I when I saw that. It's just maybe not, they a, not a well spent two hundred million dollars at all. Maybe they actually destroyed someone's personal helicopter and they got sued. <laughs> <laughs> You know what was one more good thing I thought? I, I watched this again today uh, in preparation for our talk, but... Thank you. I really liked the jet fighter sequence in the beginning. Mm. It was really dummy. fun to watch. Yeah. And Maybe they actually crashed that plane. That's what it took. That was <laughs> it, the, the film only cost about $20 million, but they, they had to smash it <laughs> on a real plane. But they had, they had this great opening, this great potential. I, I couldn't stand the, the Carol... It was such a letdown. Carol Ferris is such a strong character. Carol Ferris is... She's human. She's she's real, and she doesn't have the stupid that was brought to this. I didn't think the character was played in a dumb fashion. I just feel like Carol needed more because there is so much more to Carol. They missed the point of Green Lantern, which is not to keep it focused on Earth and not to keep yep. it focused on Hal's private life because ultimately there's a whole new load of lore you need to teach people uh, and you do that really by having a great adventure with great characters and slowly the lore gets seeped in rather than having characters turn up and explain shit 
like yeah. Toma Ray, voiced by Jeffrey Rush. He's got a lovely voice, and he explains he the history of the galaxy and the Guardians and the Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and Black Pearl. And Black... <laughs> and it just goes, it goes on and on, and you're like, right, okay, um, at what point am I supposed to say, right, I now know enough of the backstory to continue with this movie. But it's... That's not how you get a world fleshed out. Um, and, and yeah, I think they should actually have bitten the bullet and had it set in space. Which can be a hard sell. I mean, I understand yeah. why they didn't. I would imagine the Guardians of the Galaxy are probably going to spend most of the time on Earth. So, you know, that, that whole film's a risk. Yeah. That, that... Oh, yeah, we can say right now, that Guardians of the Galaxy is a very unknown quantity. I mean, someone said that it's more of a risk than Thor. Damn right it's more of a risk than Thor. Up until recently, I hadn't even bloody heard of Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm a major Marvel fan. I've been into Marvel since I was like two, and I haven't heard of these guys. The only reason people are going to see it is because it's one of the big uh, run up to the Avengers 2 films they're going to face the same problems that uh, Green Lantern did and you know what I think it'll be a better film because the yeah. folks at Marvel seem to have their shit together in that so far in phase one they didn't do one duff movie they did the, they were weaker ones among the six you know well formed movies they're not just she cooking chocolate carved into the shape of a hamburger <laughs> <laughs> It garnered a dismal 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, but worse still, it cost $200 million to make, taking $219 million, which, after marketing, makes it a flop. So here we are. A thief, two thugs, an assassin, and a maniac. But we're not gonna stand by as evil wipes out the galaxy. I guess we're stuck together. Partners. Are you telling me the fate of 12 billion people is in the hands of these criminals? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, as it turns out, that uh, high-risk Guardians of the Galaxy movie from 2014, released six months after that original recording, ended up kind of a classic. So jump forward nearly ten more years, and Sharon and I got to reappraise the Green Lantern movie. See if history had been kinder in retrospect. So, you have a Green Lantern movie for me? Yes, yes sir, I, I do. do. <laughs> Okay, we went back to this thing because it's been many, many years. We have seen two Deadpools in between time. And it was a case of, should we go back to the thing that Ryan Reynolds deeply regrets? Watch it in HD now. For you see, back when we covered this film in like 2013, maybe? Uh, we had just seen the Green Lantern animated series. And we did the wrong kind of podcast. We should just have done a podcast on this crappy film and then done a full explorative deep dive on Green Lantern. This is why it's really good. Sorry, Green Lantern, the animated series. Uh, this is why it's really good. And then a spoiler-filled investigation into the characters. Now, I'm hoping we can go back and actually do that second part. We've done the this is why it's good, no spoilers. It's in the bag. So my suggestion would be re-release this and just kind of like shift and swap. Yeah? 
We'll do something. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> but to do that, we had to go back and watch uh, them screw up Green Lantern so badly that he's not even really allowed to be mentioned in the Warner Brothers movie Pantheon. He was sort of... Like, the, the a Green Lantern was seen briefly in either version of Justice League. I can't remember if it was one or both. or It doesn't matter. It's been more than ten years since this was released. It came out around about the same time as Thor and Captain America, uh, the first Avenger. Can it really be that bad? Considering she's, she's nodding her head. <sighs> okay. That usually signals the end of the interview. We watched the extended cut for the first time ever today. Which is notable for having a lengthy uh, flashback sequence at the beginning where you meet a young Hal Jordan. I was like, I'm sure I haven't seen this stuff before. It feels familiar, but I'm not sure what. It touches upon one of the themes of the film, if you can really call it themes. Motifs? Uh, things that gets mentioned repeatedly. It's not really a theme, it's just a oft-repeated thing. And that is fear. Uh, young Hal comes downstairs in the, in the night to find his mother, uh, cry, you know, crying and holding his father and going, I'm, effectively, I'm really worried because he's going on a test flight tomorrow and she's worried he's going to explode. And then Hal's father got, comes up and, and puts him to bed and, uh, you know, he talks about whether he's scared or not. And he's like, what does his father say to him in terms of, like, his take on fear is predicated on everything that his father says. He says, it's my job not to be my afraid. job not to be afraid. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, Hal goes to see him fly and predictably his father explodes in a fiery ball. Mm. Yes. Uh, incidentally, something that really would have been useful in this particular seeding of the motif would be if Hal had been running towards the plane to help his dad mm. and had frozen because he was afraid to approach the plane that could have gone kaboom at any moment. Yeah. What you're talking about is a film where they care. Yeah. A film where they care about what is done, what is said, and what that means. This is not that kind of film, Sharon. Mm. It's a film where they're like, oh, it's a superhero, I don't know. Then he gets the thing, then he goes to the place, and he gets told about the stuff. That is this film. And then he gets chased by a big cloud. I'm not even that angry because it was a major stepping stone in Ryan Reynolds' life. It got him to Deadpool eventually. Yes, it and did. it got him Blake Lively yes, eventually because she's in this. She's rather luminous in this. Mm. There's quite an age gap between them. It's still the same age gap now, but since they're both considerably older and husband and wife, it feels less icky. Now, the thing is, if you watch the film, the extended version of the film, Hal then, we cut forward to Hal as an adult, and, like, in the original film he was, he went, goes off, he does a, uh, another flight where he's behaving like a, 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 a bottom gun, top gun pilot. And he's flying around the place going, hmm. <laughs> Yes, that is exactly what he's doing. I was going to edit that yawn out. <laughs> But you now I can. can't. It's a load-bearing yawn. You can. I'll just... You know, which was the original title of this movie. I didn't make a funny. Anyway. <laughs> he's flying around. It's very CGI. Very ropey CGI, which is all the CGI across this. But if you've just come from Top Gun Maverick, which I had, you'll, no, you'll know the very pronounced difference in the much more realistic-looking practical actual aircraft on show there. So Hal goes into a dive after he uh, gets too cocky, flies too high. The drones chasing him putter out, but then so does he. And then in his dive, he starts flashing back to the, his father's explosion. And 
because we've just seen that scene and then it cut to Hal, what they did for the theatrical release is is go, oh, fucking hell, we've got to get this down so that we can do multiple showings of this movie, get people in and then get people out. That is the top priority. We don't want anyone's feet to touch the floor. <laughs> just get them in, popcorn them, and get them the fuck out. The last thing we want them to do is invest. And uh, you then get to see the same no footage, which weirdly reminded me of that uh, scroll around uh, episode Tweet versus Craig of South Park, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, where the shop teacher keeps having horrible flashbacks to his wife crashing. But because they're stacked on top of each other, there's an uh, there's a almost a, an absurdity to the fact that he seems to live in these horrific flashbacks it's it's you're sorry for him but it's like it's so super hyper melodramatic all the time and in this because they had condensed all of that opening 10 minutes or so of, of like you know let's get to know Hal and invest in Hal no we don't need to do any of that because they did that in just a few flashes you get a few flashes of the thing you've just seen so it actually subtracts from the impact of that like when you're going to do an extended version cut a bit of the repeated stuff out. Like, if, like he's freaking out. He's in, in a steep dive. You take most of the flashback shots out and then you just have the explosion of the plane at the end so that that's the point when he pulls his chute. Then it feels like he's spiraling towards something. This is just editing 101. And the moment-to-moment editing in this film is bad like that. Like, later on, there is a scene where Hal finally first recites the Green Lantern Oath, something Green Lantern fans have been waiting and waiting and waiting for on the big screen. He's been around since almost Captain America time, maybe even uh, before, slightly before the uh, original Alan Scott Green Lantern, that is. Like, he, he has been around for a long time and the film intercuts the you know it's and that those who worship evil's might and then it cuts to the weird gross doctor played by alexander skarsgård peter skarsgård peter skarsgård sorry there's too many skarsgårds out there peter skarsgård the creepy guy from garden state uh, and skeleton key which i hated uh, and it cuts to him performing surgery on uh, uh, the, uh, the purple guy, Abin Sur, who was uh, played weirdly by Tamira Morrison, who's also Aquaman's dad. So it's like, he's the one who's going to kind of... Oh, oh was I uh, interrupting you there when I stopped uh, what you were doing and got, got you a ring? Boba Friend. And she's pulling my chair to bits. Oh, you That's how boring this film is. She's ripping bits off my chair. Ladies and gentlemen, open your wallets and say after me, help yourself. I bought a new chair a while back and it actually straight up fucked my neck. So I donated it to you because it doesn't fuck your neck so you can sit on it. So I'm I'm now sitting on this old ass chair. You remember that episode of Gravity Falls where Grunkle Stan throws away the old disgusting statue thing and then eventually fishes it out of a dumpster because he doesn't want to lose it that was me with this thing and it's just as repulsive and Sharon's pulling it to bits because she can't stand it it's like Marty's chair in Frasier anything to not talk about Green Lantern anyway and then it cuts back from gross weird Hector Hammond doing his surgery back to beware my power Green Lantern's light and it's like you interrupted it for nothing you could have shown that bit anywhere So the moment-to-moment editing in this movie is bad, and the structural editing of this movie is bad, but that mainly comes down to the fact that it is a poorly written, thinly written script. I think the 
there are several scenes where they keep cutting back to Hector and it starts to feel eventually like they're worried that if he's off screen for too long you'll forget he exists. Well, the juxtaposition suggests, see, a hero is born, see, a villain is created. Do you see the connection yeah. between these two? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, cinematic language and the Kuleshov effect suggests that, but there's n- they have no similarity. In the flashback, you actually find out that Hal and Hector were kind of childhood friends, along with Carol Ferris, played by Blake Lively. But it's not like butterfly effect, we're going to go into this and why Hector got really fucked up and Hal didn't. Yeah. No, I talked about this in 2013. There is a serious problem with this movie in terms of how they position the hero and how they position the villain. In terms of it feeling very fucking dated. Guillermo del Toro does... In Guillermo del Toro's version of this, Hal Jordan, as in exactly how he's portrayed, is the villain. He's the chisel-jawed, kind of like lantern-jawed, if you will, mm. uh, paragon, the, the the guy that everyone looks up to because he's so fucking handsome and successful and such a flyboy. Uh, but at the same time, he's like nursing his own fear, which he won't talk about. He'd be the villain. But instead, in this, Hector Hammond is this scrawny, nasty little scientist who looks like weird and odd and awkward to begin with and he's a fucking nerd and then he becomes drippy and slimy and gets a melty head but he's also really spiteful and horrible and angry and resentful of his father and Hal Jordan and but at the same he time- seems like he's been dealt a really bad hand but he's also not very talented so it's like what are we even doing here? He doesn't really get any opportunities to demonstrate why he's the villain He's the villain because he has a melty head. Yeah. Eventually, this thing looks like a giant testicle just exploding out of Peter Sarsgaard's head. I couldn't take my eyes off it. In in HD 1080p, I could see every wrinkle and crease in that ball bag, that scrotum forehead of his, and I could just see this thing rivulets below the surface as the scrawny scrote skin just kind of stretched across this shimmering testicle. When... Is he the grossest villain ever? Yes. Is he also the lamest villain ever? Yeah, probably. Hang on a minute, because uh, is it Tim Blake Nelson in The Incredible Hulk? Also has a melty head. I always get those two mixed up because their heads basically do the same thing. Do you mean Hector Hammond and the... I think he's the... I want to say the leader... Mm. Oh, fucking hell. In The Incredible Hulk, the Hulk juice drips on his head and his head turns blue and gets big. That's really all that happens. He doesn't become the leader of anything. Yeah, there you go. Samuel Stearns. Look at his giant brain head. And he looks quite a bit like Sinestro, the uh, Green Lantern villain character played by Mark Strong in this, only he has a purple head, which isn't melty. That's Sawboss. Yeah, with this giant green head thing there. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, ultimately, uh, I, originally when I saw it, I was like, "This is some." Uh, like, even in 2013, this is kind of a jock versus nerd, and why the nerd's a rotten little piece of shit, and why the jock needs to win. But then there's a bit that I'd forgotten uh, at the end where Hal uh, after uh, stealing himself and flying back to deal with the, the scary thing says, "Hector, let me help you." And I thought, oh. Kind of like uh, Spider-Man rehabilitating his, his villains, just trying to reach out. That's that's good. And then he lies to him and gives him a f- fake ring to trick Hector into going, I just wanted to kill you! Oh! And he does these weird, thin little screams. 
He's as irritating as Paul Dano's uh, Riddler. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then, then Hal's like, I lied. You see Hector, and he says this with his gorgeous, handsome face, you have to be chosen. And then he blows him backwards through the wall. And it's like... You have to not lie, Hal, is what you have to do if you're going ew. to be a hero. There's nothing good about this, and Hector genuinely did need help. Mm. It's just that... Also, the film doesn't actually make him sympathetic. It's, they, they, there's no dimensionality to anyone in this film. It's so lazy. And the weird thing is, the writing team have all done really good things. Greg Bertolini has gone on to do Doom Patrol, which is obviously a huge deal for, for Maya. Uh, he, he was uh, in, connected to a lot of CW's Arrowverse with Titans as well, which, you know, I may not like Dawson's Creek, Brothers and Sisters, Everwood, Political Animals, Riverdale, Chilling Adventures, Sabrina, and you, but loads of other people do. Uh, Michael Green, he's worked on screenplays for Logan, which is one of the finest films of the past 10 years. Blade Runner 2049. Which Mur- is one of the finest films of the last 20 years. Murder on the Orient Express. Which is one of the finest films of the last 20 years. And Alien Covenant. Which is not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark Guggenheim, who uh, worked on uh, Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow. It's weird. Like, oh, you worked on the Green Lantern movie and you fucked up with that and you didn't add any depth or... Like, this film is palpably disinterested in its own world. It doesn't want to know about Green Lantern. It doesn't care. And like when Hal gets to Oa, he gets run through training. Like, yeah, it's like, well, you'll be fighting Kilowog. And then Michael Clark Duncan comes out and starts... Like There's no real introduction to it. They don't have a talk first. They don't have a talk during. They're obviously on a green screen and loads of things are getting thrown at Ryan Reynolds. And then... Like, after having hit him in the nuts, Sinestro enters to the victorious Hal, who hasn't said anything to Kilowog, and then they start fighting, and Kilowog sort of picks himself up in the background and flies off, like, that was it, that was Kilowog for the whole film. And the only thing that was actually of use that he told Hal was, you know, with the sun, like the uh, sun that I've created here, the, the heavier you are, the more you're going to get sucked into a sun. And it's like, that seems remarkably specific. It's almost like he's going to get into a big fight next to the sun later on. And then he fights Mark Strong, and Mark Strong complains at him. Mark Strong then has already complained to the Guardians, the, the, the sort of the, the, the council who run the Green Lanterns. And then he then goes to the uh, Guardians and says, uh, I'm going to complain some more. I don't like this new Green Lantern. I liked Abin Sir. And... All he does is bitch. Like, there's, we never get to see him do good things or bad things. He just doesn't like the way this is run. He's very much positioned in the same way as uh, Count Mordo in um, Doctor Strange. But Chiwetel Ejiofor had things to do. The reason people like Marvel movies is they do all this work. They get you invested they're fun and funny. There's some funny bits in this, like when Blake Lively uh, goes, Hal, after three seconds of looking at him, because domino masks wouldn't fool anyone. Evening, ma'am. Didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Are you okay? <sighs> no, I'm, I'm glad to have a chance, so thank you. Just doing my job. No thanks necessary, miss. No, it, it is. You saved my life. You saved all of our lives. That was a very... How? Miss. 
How? your cheekbones? What is this? Why, why is your skin green? Why are you glowing? What the hell is with that mask? It's a great line and well delivered and in fact most of the delight comes from the back and forth between the two of them. But there's hardly any, like Taika Waititi is in this film. And then just, he's, he's Hal's best friend, but then disappears out of the movie because the, the movie grabs Hal. Like, after they've talked for a while, the movie just sort of grabs Hal and moves him on to the next thing. Not because he activated anything, but because it was time for Hal to move, to be moved to the next part of the film. It's the, the, one of the laziest, most, like, just get it done superhero movies I've ever seen. He's not the worst superhero. I still stand by the shadow being the worst guy. Morbius is a worse film because there's nothing charming about that film, whereas there's charming things in here. You can see where people have been wasted. But interestingly, the, even the extended edition, it went on for ages, which shows how inefficient every scene is because they don't achieve anything. The main villain, Parallax, who's like the big bad of the Green Lantern universe, he's, he's like Galactus, practically, who also turned into a big scary cloud in Fantastic Four. It's like, it would almost be like if the Fantastic Four beat Doctor Doom in film one and then beat Galactus in film two. Oh, wait, that's literally what happened in those incredibly lazy workman-like Fantastic Four films, which I still feel are better than this. Parallax is a huge deal. Like, he ruined Hal Jordan in the comics. Like, he, he, he possessed him and then he made him go crazy after his city was destroyed. And he destroyed the Green Lantern Corps. And that's like mythology now. So you don't deal with him in one fight. And Hal's afraid, but in kind of an abstract way like it feels like it, as he goes towards parallax parallax should be so powerful that he like a boggart materializes into a situation that terrifies hal to his core and as you said earlier the running towards the plane that his dad is in and blaming himself that he didn't get there in time because he paused because he was afraid of the explosions and, and the idea that he's then like got had a death wish practically of, of I will not be afraid of this thing but really deep down his acting in a foolhardy risky manner is actually a symptom of fear rather than a symptom of bravery that was something that really really ticked me off I can't remember whether it really ticked me off last time but it really did this time Sinestro has this speech about what fear is and in uh, in particular what fear is to the Green Lantern Corps because he describes it as being the enemy of will and that fear is something, although he never really, again, they never really go into the various things that people can be afraid of. Mm. Um, he talks about it in that kind of the only thing to fear is fear itself concept, yeah. conceptual way. But the way he describes it, he's like, fear is the thing that holds you still. Fear is the thing that makes you freeze. That's a very specific type of combined fear and anger and all sorts of other things that causes your nervous system to kind of go into a little bit of a shutdown. Yeah. What fear does in its purest form is make you run away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Which, the, by the way, is a survival instinct. Yeah, absolutely. The, the freezing thing is a conflict between I want to fight this thing, but I also want to run away from it. But the film is very unexplorative as to what fear could be. So oh, yes. rather than uh, Parallax uh, representing some sort of fear that it, it, it knows what scares you, mm. like it, it should be Pennywise. It's a cosmic absolutely. level fear demon. Get me the other scars, God. Yes. <laughs> But, but the, instead, like, Hal just eventually has to go, I'll square my jaw and face this fear, which is a tennis ball on a stick. Nothing. But again, and I've, I have said this before, and I'm going to start boring people with it sooner or later. My interest in the wider lantern law is that if effectively they are DC's equivalent to Inside Out. And this mm. is so minuscule in comparison to the the breadth of that multi-emotional concept. It's all out. There ain't no inside. No, exactly. (laughs) At the end, Hal Jordan beats Parallax and then three lanterns turn up and Sinestro pulls him out of the sun and it's like, you guys couldn't have been here six seconds earlier. That's the thing. How does he defeat Parallax? He lures him close to the sun and then gravity does the rest of the work for him. So what you're you're saying there is how do you defeat fear? You hoik it into the sun. (laughs) Well, symbolically speaking, he hoiked it into a big fiery ball, which is... No, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Symbolically speaking, nothing at all. This film doesn't like symbolism. It doesn't want it. And then whenever there's an opportunity... Can't use it. Whenever there's an opportunity for people to talk, it goes... And then they move on to the next scene. Absolutely. Anyway, what's Hector doing? Way better to show what Hector's doing, which is the same thing all the time. Fertling around his laboratory and going... scary folks yeah what's he doing what's he thinking what's why is he scary him i hate you father Uh, because i am so ugly and small it's it's a shit film it is is a shit film anyway the cherry on top of this is that while we were uh thinking while we were watching the uh justice league double episode introduction to john stewart's green lantern i came up with a much better like, because they've been threatening to reboot Green Lantern for years. It was going to be Green Lantern core. And people got the got wind that Chris Pine was coming into the studio to talk with Warner Brothers. And everyone was like, oh, my God, he's going to come back. He'll be Hal Jordan. They might get Jamie Foxx to play Jon Stewart. And he'll be a really cool Jon Stewart. And I was like, nah, 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 nah. You don't want a really cool Jon Stewart. One of the best episodes of Justice League Unlimited is where they get reduced to a bunch of kids. And the Jon Stewart in that is a total fucking nerd. But, like, he's a math whiz and a stickler. And it's like, you know what? That's a really uncool superhero that we can actually kind of relate to. Absolutely. Because classically... Marvel has been the nerdy superheroes, the heroes of, of science, and DC has been the classic superheroes, the heroes of square jaw and, mm. and mythological proportions. Who are unrelatable. Yes. Uh, and I thought William Jackson Harper. Yes. Chidi Anagonye in The Good Place as Jon Stewart bemused as to why he's been uh, selected by the Green Lantern Corps. You know, introduced to this uh, scenario where you know, they sort of rush him through training and say, well, we've, we've existed for 10,000 years. It's always been like this. Uh, I'm going to ask some questions. No questions 
and then it becomes immediately apparent that something fishy is going on because you can't do here you are, here is a 10,000 year old police force who answers to nothing now. You can't do it. So, the Green Lantern Corps fucked. You've got these guardians of Oa, these like, you know, miserable blue spaced men who sit up there on their podiums and aren't in any way connected to the rest of the universe. No, 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 no questions for us about the Green Lantern Corps. Like, Sinistro was absolutely right to be questioning it. So, Jon Stewart pushes further. He meets a bunch of other Green Lanterns because the whole point is he's joining a team. So you get a Guardians of the Galaxy style mix of different characters, yes. I want Melissa Fumero as Jessica Cruz. That would be... Limelight from the uh, Green Lantern uh, animated. A Latina Green Lantern. Yes, Amy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yes, uh, and you get Kilo Wog, who I thought, honestly, Ron Perlman. Like, just, you know, that kind of hellboy guy. But you bring Ron Perlman's tiredness with the studio system that would never let him be hellboy again, no matter how many times he was like, yeah, I'm up for it. And just, he's too tired to ask questions of the core anymore, and what John has to do is get him fired back up again. And then you get Tomar Ray, who's also kind of a nerd as well, maybe uh, have him played by... Who are we thinking here? Doug Jones is a bit too obvious, isn't it? You know, I kind of want to get Doug Jones. Fuck it. It's my thing. It's I'm a doing fish it. Fishman. Yeah. Doug Jones is your go to for fishmen. Oh, God, that'd be so charming. And those two chatting with each other, and everyone's like, oh my God, it's Hellboy and Abe, but they're in different costumes. Mm. <sighs> and uh, then for your fifth guy, Chip. C H apostrophe P. He's a little squirrel, Green Lantern. Don't make him like Rocket, make him much more chipper. The idea is that these characters get together. You don't have to make it like really edgy and dark but you can make it very clear that the Lanterns do have no uh, higher authority that they answer to and do need to be kept in check. These guys need to tear this up by the roots and start again. From then on, every subsequent Green Lantern core film can be about how their best intentions have somehow got them into another sticky situation and kind of dealing with the difficulties of trying to readjust a system that worked a long time ago but now is outdated and violent. Fuck all of this. Oh, yellow is fear and we don't like that. Like, we need to bring in all the other lanterns over time over the next few bunches of uh, uh, films and just illustrate how all of these different emotions, anger, fear, even envy for orange with laugh leads. Like, these things have merit, and you are absolutely right with uh, making it kind of a superhero inside out. There's so much fertile ground here, and you make it funny, and at the same time, kind of good-hearted. You can out-marvel Marvel this way. So yeah, that's my idea. We will be back. In the meantime, I definitely suggest you watch all of that Green Lantern animated series. It's really good. As for the Ryan Reynolds movie, I think he'd rather we all forgot about it, don't yes, you? Yes, I do. So I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.
Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so a big shout-out thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Dory, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. I have sacrificed all of my life.